Father, we do thank you for the love that you have poured out to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that even while we were your enemies, when we were far from you, God, when we had turned our backs against you, when we hated you, you still gave us Jesus. His blood was still shed for us. His body was still broken for us. And because of this, what we can be covered by your grace, covered by your mercy and your love. We can turn to you in faith and repentance. We can be welcomed to you as sons and daughters to a father. Lord, we praise you for that promise of Romans chapter eight, that there is nothing, nothing. There is no height, no depth. There's angels, principalities, things above, things below. Nothing can separate us from your love when we are in Jesus. So we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, it's our desire today that we would see him, that we would see your heart through your word. So Father, will you speak to us today through your word? Speak to us today, Father, a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Will you sanctify us in truth? Your word is truth. We submit ourselves to it now. And we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. If you're not there already, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there now. If you're our guest, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. We're honored to have you worshiping with us this morning. And um, what we as a church family have been doing for the last few months is walking verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And so uh, last week we had our friend Matt Rawlings in town from Greenville, a sister church with Acts 29. And grateful to have that brother with us. Served our church so well last week. And today um, we are going to be looking at a part two of a part one that we started two weeks ago. And so if you weren't here two weeks ago, I'll just refer you to our website. You can see that sermon online. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 43 where we left off um, just a couple of weeks ago from Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to let you know in advance, uh, I've been coughing my head off all week long and I've already preached once. So my voice, I think I'm going to make it this morning. Uh, but y'all uh, pray for me. I'm going to do my, my very best to, to keep driving forward here uh, this morning. But if you'll just bear with me here a little bit today. The heartbeat of the Sermon on the Mount is that those who follow Jesus Christ should be different from the world in every possible way. Everything about us as followers of Jesus is supposed to be different, and we've seen this together over the last few months. Our attitudes about money and sex are different. Our attitudes about strength and weakness are different. Our attitudes about life and death are different. Everything we're called to be and everything we're called to believe as followers of Jesus Christ should look different from the rest of the world. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus was striving to do was cast a vision where he was turning an upside down world right side up. John Stott has called the Sermon on the Mount a manifesto for the Christian life. This is our vision for what it means to be Jesus' people and to walk the Jesus way. Everything about us is different, including the way we fight. And we saw this just a couple of weeks ago. Even the way we fight as followers of Jesus looks different than what comes naturally to the rest of the world. So uh, when we started looking at how to fight like Jesus a, few, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus calls us to be people who turn the other cheek. He calls us to be people who do more than what is required or expected of us. He calls us to be people who are willing to go the extra mile. He calls us to be people who give to those in need. And the question that I left us with a couple of weeks ago was this. How willing are you to be wronged for the name of Jesus Christ? 
How willing are you to be wronged for the name of Jesus Christ? Do you have the strength to not fight back with evil when the world meets you with evil? Do you have the strength to not return evil for evil, to return sin for sin? Because Jesus calls us, even in our retaliation, to lay that aside and walk in a different way. You know, but as difficult as those first four commands are in verses 37 through 42, I believe the verses we're going to look at this morning, this is my personal opinion, I think these are the most difficult commands in all the Bible. I think what we're going to look at this morning are the hardest commands that we find in all of Scripture. It's been estimated that uh, this year alone, that this year alone it's been estimated that over 2,500 Christians in Nigeria have lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We don't see this on the news. You know, we tend to be insulated from these things as a culture, but globally uh, Christians are persecuted everywhere. But especially in, in Nigeria, it's just a nation where it's extremely dangerous to be a follower of Jesus Christ right now. Beyond the 2,500 who have lost their lives just this year, there's thousands of others who have been kidnapped or displaced. And you read some of the stories, and they're just horrific. Some of these brothers and sisters in Christ, they, they have been hacked to death with machetes. Their buildings have been burned to the ground. It is extremely dangerous for them to be followers of Jesus in their context. Mothers and fathers have lost sons and daughters, and sons and daughters have lost mothers and fathers, and brothers and sisters have lost brothers and sisters. And the reason I say I think verses 38 through 42 are the most difficult commands in all the Bible is because if Jesus really meant what he says in these verses, what he would have us do for these people is love them and pray for them. The people who are committing these injustices, the people who are committing these atrocities, if Jesus really meant what he said in verses 38 through 42, what he would have us do as Jesus' people who are walking the Jesus way is to love the enemies of the church and pray for the persecutors of the church. Verses 43 to 48, what Jesus shows us this morning is that we are called to walk in his perfect righteousness as we do two things. As we love our enemies— and we pray for our persecutors. Walking in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ means doing things that are gonna be impossible for us by our own strength and by our own efforts. So it calls us to walk in his perfect righteousness by loving our enemies and praying for our persecutors. And in doing this more than anything else, we prove that we're truly walking the way of Jesus and that we're truly children of the heavenly father. We said two weeks ago that this section of the Sermon on the Mount is the fork in the road on the Jesus way. It's when we get to commands like these that you and I will prove by our actions, are we walking the way of Jesus or are we walking the way of the world? So we'll look at part two this morning of what it means to fight like Jesus. Let's read again from Matthew 5, uh, verses 43, the first part of verse 44. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. So how do we fight like Jesus? Again, part two this morning. Fifth, we see that we fight like Jesus by loving our enemies. We fight like Jesus by loving our enemies. Now, verse 43 is the sixth and final time in this section that Jesus repeats this formula, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. And again, we've laid this foundation in the weeks before. Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. He's not disagreeing with the Old Testament. What he's disagreeing with are the faulty interpretations and teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees based on the Old Testament. When Jesus is once tested by a scribe, by one of the religious leaders, 
what is the greatest commandment in scripture? He responds with Deuteronomy 6.4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he goes on to say, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in the first part of that answer, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. In the second part, he's quoting Leviticus 17. And this is the part that the Pharisees had largely ignored and distorted. Leviticus 17, 19, 17 and 18, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So this was the error of the scribes and the Pharisees. They took the command and the imperative to love your neighbor to mean that as long as your neighbor wasn't your brother, then you were free to hate your enemy. And so that's how they had taken this command and distorted it. So, so two things here. The Pharisees had not only subtracted a key component, Leviticus 19, they added something new. Now here, here's what they subtracted. Go back and read Leviticus 19. The command is not just love your neighbor. The command is what? Love your neighbor as who? As yourself. And they had subtracted this from the command. It wasn't just love your neighbor as yourself. It was just taught as love your neighbor. That's what they had taken away. Now, what exactly does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves? What does it mean to love our neighbor as our, ourselves? Because if we don't accurately understand this, we're going to end up with something that's going to really skew our perspective of what the Lord is, is getting across to us here. So let's talk for a second about what love your neighbor as yourself does not mean. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, despite what many are teaching today, this is not a command to love yourself. And it's definitely not a command for us to be lovers of self. This command is not an encouragement to love yourself. The command is simply an acknowledgement that we already love ourselves. By loving our neighbor as ourselves, think of what comes naturally to you. What we are naturally, by nature, what we are self-seeking types of people. We seek out our own welfare. We seek out our own security. We seek out our own comfort. We seek out our own success. So to love our neighbor as ourselves means to desire our neighbors to be loved in the same ways that we desire to be loved. So it doesn't just mean to kind of vague, generic love yourself. And it definitely doesn't mean to be a lover of self. And listen, nobody loved themselves more than the scribes and the Pharisees. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, they loved their righteousness. They loved their titles. They loved the praise of man, the glory of man, the honor of man. The, the scribes and the Pharisees loved these things. And if we're not careful, if we leave this out of check and we get our hearts out of check with what the Lord intends by this command, what's going to happen is we'll become a bunch of self-obsessed spiritual narcissists. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees had become. It's not an encouragement to be a lover of self, and it's an acknowledgement that we already love ourselves. And we want to love our neighbors in the same ways that we desire to be loved. So instead of love your neighbor as yourself, the way the scribes and the Pharisees would teach is love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So they didn't just subtract the as yourself, they added something insidious as well. It was love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And, and again, th this is the scribes and the Pharisees. We've seen this time and again over the last several weeks. It's the creation of a loophole in order to justify sin. That This is the MO of the religious leaders of the time of Jesus. It's manipulating the scriptures in order to accommodate their sin. Now, uh, if we're just being honest, we've done a little bit this morning, and especially the last several weeks, we've been pretty hard on the scribes and the Pharisees, right? 
Like it's easy to read the Bible, you know, with rose-colored glasses and think if we were there, we would have done things differently. And I think we're just being honest, you know, we, we have a tendency that they have a bad rap and we have a tendency to be kind of hard on the scribes and on the Pharisees. And this particular section this morning, I think we could actually find some sympathy with where they are. And here's why. You know, if we're just being honest, the scribes and the Pharisees were just teaching what comes naturally to all of us. It doesn't come naturally to us to love our enemies, does it? What comes naturally to us is disdain for our enemies. It's pushback to our enemies. It's hatred to our enemies. So if we're just being honest, the scribes and the Pharisees were really just teaching what comes naturally to us, sometimes even as followers of Jesus Christ. But a second reason I think we should have some sympathy for their interpretation is that there are passages of Scripture, especially from the Old Testament, that are kind of difficult to reconcile with what Jesus teaches here in verses 43 and 44. Now, if you look all through the Old Testament, um, you, you'll find a, a number of passages of Scripture, not super popular, that talk about not just God's hatred for sin, but even sometimes hatred for sinners. You know, the, the mantra, the common mantra that we uh, will repeat very often today is that we should love the sinner but hate the sin. We, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And, and we kind of lay down that baseline, and that is a generally true statement. But it isn't totally held up, or it doesn't, isn't totally supported when we hold it up together against scripture. The reality is that there's over a dozen times in the Psalms alone that God not only expresses his hatred for sin, he expresses hatred for sinners. One of these examples comes from Psalm chapter five, verses five and six. Psalmist writes, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now talk about verses you will never see on a coffee cup, right? Like no youth camp is going to have that on a t-shirt next summer. Like that, that's this never going to happen. These are the verses that, man, that this, this pushes our modern sensibilities to the max. But at least 14 times in the Psalms alone, we find similar verses. The, the idea that God has hatred for sinners, it, it really tests our modern sensibilities. And, and, and there's ways that we, we've seen this even come to life in the last 10, 12 years. Um, many of you have probably read David Platt's book, Radical. It came out, I think, in 2010. Uh, it was a bestseller. It was very, very popular. And, and in this book, David Platt takes on this passage from Psalm chapter 5 head on. And, and when he did, uh, he received a ton of pushback for the things that he wrote. Um, the Birmingham newspaper, not long after the book was published, one of the Birmingham newspapers wrote, while it is a common pulpit truism that God hates sin and loves the sinner, Platt argues that God hates sinners. And so his pushback to that was like, listen, that, that's not my argument. I'm just reading what the Bible says. Like these things just make us so uncomfortable that the immediate response is to give it pushback. And again, it is generally true that God hates sin and loves the sinner. We'll look at Romans 5 here in just a few moments. It's one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But, but church, I fear if your perception of God were formed exclusively on the way he is presented in a lot of modern kind of self-help therapeutic type of sermons, this is what you would feel. You would believe that God is only loving, he is only grace, he is only merciful, he is wild about you and crazy about you, and you are the greatest desire of his heart and the object of his affection. That's what you would hear. But that is not only a distorted gospel, it's a completely truncated gospel. And, and this is what makes the gospel so good. This is what makes the gospel so good. 
God is not just perfect in his love, grace, and mercy. God is also perfect in his justice, judgment, and wrath. The reality is God does feel hatred for sinners. And, and listen, he's completely justified in doing it because he's God. But this is what makes the gospel so big. This is going to mess with some of our minds this morning. What makes the gospel so big is not just that God loves who he loves. What makes the gospel so big is that God loves even those whom he hates. Those who have sinned against him, those who have rejected him, those who commit evil against him, even the hatred, the holy wrath that God feels in his heart against sinners, even in his hatred for the sinner, he loves them by giving his son Jesus Christ for them. Church, here's the reality this morning. Apart from Jesus, all of us are enemies of God. We're all enemies of God. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ. We're not deserving of his love. We're not deserving of his grace. We're not deserving of his mercy. What we do deserve is his judgment and his justice and his wrath. What we did deserve for our sin was the full measure of his hatred for sinners and punishment of our sin because of the way that we had rebelled against him. So why does Christ call us to love our enemies? Christ calls us to love our enemies because he loved his enemies. He gave himself up even for his enemies. The reality is, church, that was you, that was me. That that is everybody who is outside of faith in Jesus Christ. We are enemies of God deserving of his wrath. And instead of receiving his wrath, we received his grace. Instead of receiving judgment for our sin, Jesus Christ came and lived the perfectly righteous life we couldn't live. He took our place in death on a cross, died the death that we deserve. So God's love, church, is not a passive love. It's an active love. And he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. It's not passive, it's active. And we see this evidence in the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus doesn't just call us to love our enemies and an active love. Jesus also calls us to pray even for our persecutors. So we love our enemies, we pray for our persecutors. This is what Jesus says, verses 44 through 47. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and send rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So we love our enemies. Jesus goes on to show us six that we pray for our persecutors. It's not passive love, it's active love. Everything we've seen over the last couple of weeks together is active love. So go back to the section before that we were in two weeks ago. Jesus teaches if someone slaps you on the right cheek, what are you supposed to do in response? That was like a group interaction thing, uh, second service. If Jesus slaps you on the right cheek, what do we do in response? We turn the other. Someone forces you to go one mile, what do you do? Someone sues you for your cloak, what do you do? You give them your tunic as well. Somebody asks of you, begs of you to borrow from you, what do you do? You give them what they need. Everything that Jesus calls us to do is active love. And so, so this isn't like a, a vague, ambiguous, love your enemies. Well, I can love them because God loves them, but I don't have to like them. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. It's calling us to an active love. We love our neighbor as ourselves, even if our neighbor is our enemy, because that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We love our enemies, and we specifically love them by praying for them, even when they persecute us. That's what Jesus goes on to show us here. He says, love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, and why do we do this? Why? He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
Just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that we become sons and, and take on the identity of the children of God. We don't earn our salvation and work for it by loving enemies and by praying for persecutors. What Jesus is saying is it will be proven that you are children of the heavenly father. You are the son taking on the likeness of the father if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the natural overflow of those who are in Jesus Christ. If we are truly in Jesus Christ, what will naturally flow from our hearts is that we will do for others what God has done for us, which is loving even our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. God shows grace even to his enemies. And Jesus goes on to show this. He gives example of even the common graces that God has shown all of mankind, whether they're believers in Jesus Christ or not. Jesus gives a couple examples here. He says, listen, it's not just the good. It's not just the, the just who get sunrises and sunsets. It's not just the good. It's not just the just who, who have rain that falls on their crops. Whether you're in Christ or not in Christ, we receive these common graces together. And while only some have experienced God's saving grace, all of humanity gets to experience God's common grace. Whether we're in Christ or not. Listen, this is why Romans chapter one says that, that no one, even those who have not yet heard the gospel, no one, is not, no one has an excuse for not believing in God because he has revealed himself in the common graces of creation. God has allowed all of humanity, regardless of where you are, to experience common graces, good things that are universal to the human experience. So God gives sunrises and sunsets. He gives beaches and he gives mountains. He gives sex and he gives drink and food and he gives pleasure and he gives rest and recreation. He gives sports. Like he didn't have to give us any of these things. He didn't have to. But because he is good, even to his enemies, we have all gotten to taste the common grace of God. I mean, just think about this, like flavor in food. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to do that. He's thinking about steak up there. He's like, man, they're going to love this. How are they not going to believe in me after this? If you're a vegan like kale, just think of that. You're right, like coffee. How are they not going to believe in me after this? How are they not? Man, man how, how many of us watched a football game at some point in time yesterday? Just, just the enjoyment of sports. Man, my team lost yesterday. And, and still, it's just like, man, how good is God that he has given us these things that we can enjoy? None of us deserve these things, even to his enemies. God has extended common grace. And if that's not good enough, even to his enemies, he's also extended saving grace. So, so we love our enemies and we pray for them in the way that God has loved us and given us Christ. Again, does any of this come naturally to any of us in this room? Like, did, did any of us wake up this morning and say, how could I bless somebody who's really just been to a, a jerk to me, Rayleigh? Like, who's really been getting on my nerves? I'd like to write that person a card sometime today. Tell them how much I love them and care for them. And This doesn't come naturally to us, right? That these things don't come naturally to us because of our sin. We want to return evil for evil. We want to return sin for sin, but Jesus calls us to be different from the world in any way. He goes on to ask these questions. He says, listen, if you, you love those who love you, if you only love those who love you, if you only greet those who, who greet you, he, he just asks them, he says, don't, don't the tax collectors do that? Now, again, you're not, you're not familiar just the context of the New Testament. It, through the New Testament, there was like sinner bad, and then there was tax collector bad. Oftentimes, you'll see these categories, like the sinners and the tax collectors. They were their own unique category of sinner. They were, they were corrupt. They were unjust. They took advantage of the people. They were universally hated by pretty much everyone. And then Jesus goes on to give a second offensive example of the Gentiles. The Jewish people often referred to the Gentiles as dogs, 
They saw them as unclean. They saw them as outside of the kingdom, outside of God's covenant, outside of his blessing, undeserving of his salvation. And Jesus just says to that crowd that's gathered, he says, listen, you you love those who love you. You greet those who greet you. He says, great. So does everybody else. There's nothing distinct if we only love those who love us in return. There's nothing distinct about about only greeting those who would greet us in return. The true test of our faith, the true test of whether or not we're walking the way of Jesus is if we will love and we will greet those who don't love us and greet us in return. That's what it means to walk in the Jesus way. So our love isn't passive, it's active. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, that this is the active type of love that God calls us to. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, I I think this idea of praying for our persecutors, it's almost completely foreign to to most of us because if we're just being honest, as Western Christians, very, very few of us have experienced any type of pushback for our faith that remotely resembles what a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ overseas go through. I think, I think it is clear that in our cultural context today, it is becoming much less and less popular to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and we should expect pushback as those things continue to be more and more true. But, but in our eyes, I think because of the, the affluence that we've enjoyed, the freedoms oftentimes that we've enjoyed, we don't see persecutors to, as people to be prayed for. We, we see that much more as a problem to be solved, right? Like, like we don't pray for our persecutors, we, we crush them. We revolt against them. We rise up against them. In our eyes, praying and forgiving, man, that's, that's for those who are weak. What we've got to do, we've got to rise up and we've got to fight in return. And we'll often talk in our cultural context about prayer for the persecuted, but how often do we talk about prayers for the persecutors? That's what Jesus is calling us to do in this verse. In Scripture, the first Christian martyr is a man named Stephen. And so Stephen is, is brought before a council, he gives his testimony, he proclaims the gospel, he's stoned to death for his profession and faith in Christ. And as he was dying, these are his final words as they're recorded in Acts chapter 7. His words of Stephen at his death, he says, Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, Bible scholars in the room, as Stephen was being martyred for his faith, as he was being stoned to death, Who was present at the martyrdom of Stephen overseeing and approving his execution? It was a man named Saul. And what do we know about Saul? The young Pharisee, zealous to persecute the church, zealous to to stamp out this band of Jesus followers, zealous to suppress the movement of the faith. And what happens to him? He meets the risen Christ. His life is turned upside down. He comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He's, he's now known to us as the Apostle Paul. He's responsible for the gospel spreading all over the world in the first century. He's written half of our New Testament. Eventually, he himself goes on to be martyred for his faith. The, the great persecutor of the church himself became a persecuted Christian. And, and why does it happen? How does it happen outside of the grace of God? Through the prayers of Stephen. 
The Lord hears in his, his prayer. He, he forgives Paul in spite of the work that he's doing. Now, now listen, this is pure conjecture, speculation on my part, but I have to believe that apart from Jesus on, on the day that Paul stood before the Lord in, in judgment and entered into eternity, I've got to believe the second person that Paul met was Stephen. I mean, can you imagine that interaction? Uh, Paul, this is, this is the brother whose life that he took, and as his life was being taken, what was he doing? He was praying for Paul. And the gospel continued to explode all through Asia. These are examples that we see, not just in Scripture, we've seen them all throughout church history. You know, last week marked 486 years since William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake as a martyr in England. Who's familiar with the life and history of William Tyndale? That's not nearly enough people. Some of y'all need to get on Google today. And here's why that's not nearly enough. His crime, William Tyndale's great crime, in case you weren't aware, was that he was translating the Bible into English. That's what he was doing. He was strangled and burned at the stake for believing that people like you and I should have a Bible in your hands. I want you to remember that the next time you leave your Bible for three weeks on the floorboard of your car. That there are brothers and sisters in Christ through the century whose blood was shed so that you could neglect it and not have anything to do with it. It was that important to them that we could have this type of access to the gospel. And as he was being tied up just moments before this gruesome, horrific execution, his last words that he prayed were recorded, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That was his prayer. His prayer was even for his persecutor. Until his dying breath, his passion was to see the Bible translated into the English language. And three years after he was martyred, the Lord answered his prayer when the king authorized the placement of English Bibles in all of the parish churches. Why? Because he stayed the course. Because he loved his enemy and prayed for his persecutors. Because he did that, you and I have a Bible that we can read today. Through the life of William Tyndale. So, so how do we do this? Like, how do we actually pray for our persecutors? We hear Jesus saying, love them, and it's an act of love. We need to pray for them. But how specifically do you pray for persecutors? How, how do we pray for those who are hostile against the Christian faith? I, I want to suggest just four very simple ways that we can pray for those who are persecutors of Christian. First, and, and most simply, I think we pray for their conversion. We pray for their conversion, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that it is God's desire for all people to come to repentance and be saved. And so if that's God's desire, man, that should be our desire as well. It should be our desire that their hearts would turn to the Lord in faith, turn to him in repentance, so that their eyes can be opened to the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Beyond praying for their conversion, we can also pray for their welfare. And again, it doesn't come easy to us, doesn't come naturally to us, but Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, even if our neighbors are our enemies. So we can pray that their experiences in this world of God's common grace could lead to salvation. It could lead to his saving grace. But even as we pray for their welfare, we also see through scripture, we can pray for their failure. We can pray for their failure. God hates evil, and we see in scripture even at times those who commit evil. God does not desire to see evil be accomplished, so how do we pray? We pray for their efforts to take life to fail. We pray for their desire to destroy property. We pray for this to fail. We pray for their desire to hinder the advancement of the gospel to fail and that their feet will stumble as they run to commit evil. And last, we can pray for their judgment. Even as we pray for their conversion, even as we pray for their welfare, we, we trust that vengeance is in the hands of God. It's not in our hands. 
we, we turn them over to the just judge, the perfect judge and ruler of the universe. So even as we pray for conversion of persecutors, we can ask for God's perfect judgment and justice to be accomplished against his enemies. Our love for our enemies is not passive, it's active. And church, if we're going to walk the Jesus way, we have to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. We have to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. And please understand this morning, this is not like advanced graduate level Christianity. According to Jesus, this is just Christianity 101. You know, oftentimes, I want to be careful here, but, but oftentimes, uh, some of us as followers of Jesus Christ who have been doing this for a while, um, as we get older and as we mature and as we grow in the faith, you'll often hear a lot of us start talking about our need for something deeper, okay? I, I need deeper sermons, more robust, richer, deeper. I need deeper Bible study. I need deeper experiences of prayer. I need a deeper experience of, of community. And oftentimes, you know, we, we will wring, wring our hands in pious concern, just kind of hop from one church to the next because it's not quite deep enough for, for us. But, but hear me out this morning. According to Jesus, your faith is as deep as the last enemy that you loved and the last persecutor you prayed for. Listen, you, you, can, you can have completed all the Bible studies, you've been to all the conferences, you've been in church your whole life, you, you give generously, you serve, you go on mission trips, that's fine. All of that is well and good, but until we have learned to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, we need to lay aside all this talk about going deeper because if we're not loving enemies and praying for persecutors, church, we haven't even stepped into the kiddie pool of faith, according to Jesus. We still got the floaties on our arms, standing off to the side, and we're scared to jump in. That This is Christianity 101. The way we demonstrate that we're truly walking the Jesus way more than any other way is that we love our enemies and we pray for those who would persecute us. Your faith is as deep as the last enemy you loved and the last persecutor you prayed for. That's great you have the verse memorized in the Greek. Are you actually doing it? Are we actually doing these things? because this is what Jesus calls us to. This is what it means to walk in his way. This is the example of Stephen. This is the example of William Tyndale. This is the example of Jesus himself as he's hanging on the cross, Luke 23. What did Jesus pray from the cross as his life, as he's giving it up right there on the cross at the hands of those who were trying to take it from him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's the fork in the road here, church. It's the fork in the road. Are we walking the way of Jesus or are we going the way of the world? We, we prove with what we do with verses like this whether or not we're truly walking on the Jesus way. Is that, again, I think two of the most difficult commands in all the scripture. Is it easy to love your enemies? It's not. Is it easy to pray for persecutors? It's not. But as difficult as those two commands are, I think the most difficult is actually at the end of this passage. I don't even think we've seen the most difficult and challenging command. Like, like does, that, does that just depress anybody else like in the room? Like I'm, I've, I've had to wrestle with this passage for two weeks. I, you know, I took a week off and then back this week. And so usually these passages, they only get to kick my tail for like six days. This one's had to kick my tail for two weeks. And, and this one is in particular, this is, I think, we're finally coming to, to the most difficult command in all of Scripture. This is what Jesus says in verse 48. We love enemies. We pray for persecutors. Why? Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So how do we fight like Jesus? We fight like Jesus by loving our enemies. We fight like Jesus by praying for our persecutors. Third, you know what we fight like Jesus? We gotta be perfect. Anybody nail on that one in the room right now? We gotta be perfect. 
Love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. The ESV expository commentary notes that the Hebrew word for perfect can mean flawless or ethically upright or ethically whole. And the Greek term teleos, it means to mature or to complete. Now, again, I know what some of you are thinking with that third point because it's exactly what I'm thinking even as I talk right now and every time I read it. What some of us are thinking is that's an impossible command because nobody's perfect. Some of you are like, Taylor, I don't, I don't know how to apply that one to my life. Like, I don't know what to do with that this week. Doesn't feel like a very good third application point here. The first two, I can see that one. The third one, impossible, right? It's impossible. When we hear a command like this, you must be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. We say, nobody can do that. That's impossible. In church, listen, impossible is the point. That, that's the point that Jesus is making to us here. Listen, you can walk in godliness in this life. You will never walk in perfect sinlessness in this life. We can walk in Christ. What Jesus is calling us to do here, it's not just hard, it's impossible. And impossible is the point. This is where the end of chapter five ties all the way back to the beginning of chapter five, where we started way back in June. The first of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You are not going to do it on the merit of your own goodness. But what this lays out for us is, listen, it doesn't matter how strong your resume is. We've all fallen short of perfect. None of us is going to hit this. We've all fallen short of this standard. So if you're saying that's impossible, you've actually hit the point. That is the point. It is impossible. And it's a level of impossible that brings us to Jesus, because you and I, because of our sin, we can never attain this perfection on our own. I'm in a, a doctoral program um, through Southeastern Seminary. I'm about two thirds of the way through and knocked out most of my classes. I'm entering into my writing and my project phase now. And so next year I'll be uh, doing my project and then writing my dissertation towards the end of the year. And, um, and, and all through that, this process, man, it's, it's very, very humbling because um, we're getting constant feedback. My, my sermons are evaluated by peers every single week. Um, my, my every paper that we write, we, we evaluate each other and it's evaluated by professors. And the papers in, in particular, man, our, our professors are just ruthless on these things. Like you, you better have thick skin because it's like, I, I can't, maybe I've walked away in tears a couple times. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's heavy. I got like a 99 in my last paper and it looked like a, a four-year-old had taken a Crayola to it because of how much, how many notes and how much feedback was on there. You're just having to gospel yourself like, okay, my identity's not in this paper, it's in Jesus. My professor's Satan, like that's, he's the voice of the enemy, you know, like, like that, that's what you're feeling in those moments because it's just constant pushback. And, and so uh, I was in a, in a seminar with uh, Dr. Alan Mosley this past January and he was um, just right there in front of everybody. He's walking through all our papers. This is what was good, this is what was bad to just kind of peer-to-peer -peer accountability. And, and he finishes up after about 30 minutes of this. He goes, now, now here's why I'm being so nitpicky at this stage right now. He goes, the reason I'm nitpicking so much of your writing style and your grammar and your use of words is because when it comes to your project phase, when it comes to writing your dissertation, he said, the requirement is not that your dissertation be good. The requirement is that it be perfect. He's like, I want to help you get there. I want to help you get there. He said that that's the standard that we have as an institution. If we're going to give you a title and we're going to take your, your couple hundred pages of work and we're going to bind it up and we're going to stamp our seal of approval on it. We're going to put it in our library and point future students to it and say, hey, this is good work and a good example of what you can do. He said that the requirement's not that it's going to be good. The requirement's going to be that it be perfect. 
And again, we hear commands like what Jesus gives here, and it's so easy just to, to kind of throw up our hands. We want to immediately blunt the edge of that command and say, well, well, nobody's perfect. And we immediately want to just suppress that and put it off to the side. Well, nobody's perfect. This is impossible. Nobody can, can meet this standard. And statistically, if you, you ask people if they would choose heaven or hell in the afterlife, 100% of people choose heaven over hell, right? Like, like nobody's like, yeah, I, I would like the eternal punishment and wrath over the eternal enjoyment of being in God's presence. No, nobody chooses that. And, and of those who maybe aren't even followers of Jesus Christ and, and maybe don't really believe in God, if they would say that they were going to heaven over hell, what would be their reasoning? They would say, I, I'm a what? It's because I'm what? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And what, what are they going to do? They're going to point to the resume. You know, I love my family. I love my kids. I work hard. I'm generous with my money. I'm generous with my time. I'm a good neighbor. I vote the right way, whatever that even means. Like, like we're going to point to this long, long resume of all the goodness, all the things that we've done in our lives. And whenever that moment happens that they do stumble and fall short and mess up, what's the excuse? Well, nobody's perfect. Here's the problem with all that. We can claim our goodness all that we want, but friend, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the requirement is not that you be good. The requirement is that you be perfect. And we can't hide behind the excuse nobody's perfect because the gospel tells us that somebody was. And this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Impossible is the point. God wants you to see that and say that's impossible so that you might finally be broken of your pride and your arrogance and your self-righteousness and lift up your hands and say, I need Jesus. I need someone who has done this for me because I can't do this for myself. And we rightly sing of the cross. We rightly sing of, of the empty tomb. But I think something that, an aspect of Jesus's ministry that we often miss is obviously the gospels focus mostly on the last three years of the life of Jesus. Did it occur to you, Jesus walked 30, 33 years on this earth and across three decades, he never one time sinned? It wasn't just the, the, the several hours on the cross. It was the lifetime of overcoming temptation perfectly, never failing. Jesus didn't just die for your sin, he lived for your righteousness. He accomplished something for you that you and I could never accomplish for ourselves. And this is the goodness of God. Even those who are his enemies, even those whom he has hated, he still loves them in giving them Jesus. He, he still loves us by giving us so much more than, than we deserve. This is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 5. We're going to close with this. Apostle Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know, even evil, evil people will die for those that they love. And the point that Paul's making here is, is listen, yeah, yeah, it, might, it's, it is a good thing that, that someone would die for someone that they love, but, but most of us would be willing to do that. Are you willing to die for someone who hates you? Are you willing to die for someone who you hate, who you can't stand? 
who's committed evil against you, as impossible as all of that sounds to us, that, that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He calls us to be different in every way. Church, I understand, like this sermon definitely this morning, it comes from the department of much easier said than done, right? It's a lot easier to just memorize the verse and move on. And yet it's right here that this is the crux of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the fork in the road where you and I are going to prove through our actions, are we walking the Jesus way or are we just doing what everybody else does? Are we willing to be wronged for the sake of Christ? Are we willing to lay down retaliation that others might find redemption in the name of Jesus Christ? Are are we desiring, are we walking in a way that is different from the rest of the world, even in the way that we fight? So what do we do? How do we fight like Jesus? We, We turn the other cheek. We do more than what is required of us. We go the extra mile. We give to those in need. We love our enemies. We pray for our persecutors. And by doing this, we are walking in the perfect righteousness in which God calls us to walk. This is what it means to fight like Jesus because this is the Jesus way. So you bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning. Father, these are such humbling words because these aren't things that we can do on our own. Lord, we come to you this morning confessing that we, God, in our sin, we are so prone. We have tendencies to hide behind our efforts of righteousness, to justify ourselves based on the good things that we do, that we perceive ourselves doing. And Lord, we we confess that, that what we find here this morning is completely impossible apart from you. So we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to accomplish impossible for us. Father, would you break our hearts of pride? Would you break our hearts of any, any level of arrogance that believes we could stand before you on the basis of our own goodness or our own righteousness or our own good works? Father, help us to lay all these things down this morning. Help us to recognize who we truly were apart from Jesus, that we were your enemies, but you loved us. That as he was cursed on the cross, Jesus prayed for us. So Father, help us to press into the gospel this morning so that the love you have poured out to us could be poured out to others. That a watching world would see us walking a different way that everybody else is going. Lord, that we would not retaliate So God, call us to something deeper today. Call us to something deeper than the head knowledge of what your word says, Lord. Bring us into heart knowledge that we would believe truly what you've said here. That we would understand that you truly meant what you said, that this is not a suggestion, it's a command. And help us to walk in your way as we go this week. 